We are going to get started. We will be in 1 Timothy chapter 2 once again this week. And we will be in verse 5, starting in verse 5. But for context, because context is very important, I'm going to begin reading from the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1. Before I do that, let me just open us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We just pray for uh, our minds and our hearts to be focused on you and your word, uh, that you would blot out the manifold distractions that might even be uh, pulling for our attention right now, uh, the responsibilities we have tomorrow, the frustrations we've had throughout the week, even today. Just pray that you would help us to uh, bring our minds and our hearts to you. Uh, and that you would heal us by the grace of your word. pray this in your name. Amen. So, 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings, for all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and respectable in every way. This is good, and it is right in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the one man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for many, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It is for this reason that I was appointed both a preacher and an apostle. I am telling you the truth and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles, unto faith and truth. So this is uh, specifically verse 5 through 7 is what we will be focusing on this week. And we will be talking about the effective payment of Christ's death on the cross. The effective payment of Christ's death on the cross. You guys can come in and find a seat. You're more than welcome to. So... In these verses, one of the things that we see is we see that Paul is once again cycling back to these little gospel presentations. Now, in chapter 1, he goes to say that he is appointed an apostle. He's been entrusted with the gospel. And then uh, towards the uh, later verses of chapter 1, really chapter 1, verses 12 and following, he talks about his own conversion and how the gospel effectively has worked in his life to redeem him, to save him. Uh, And now he's changed as a result. And then he then turns and says, so Timothy, defend this gospel from all these false teachers. Uh, And then he names a couple. And then he turns and he's now talking about, let's say, what do you do when you gather in worship? That's the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. And so he's talking about what do you do in, in public prayer? How do you pray? How do you pray corporately? Encouraging Timothy to do that kind of corporate prayer. And then, uh, you might have picked this up last week, then he, he kind of does this gospel slip again, because Paul's logic is never far away from the gospel. You'll notice all good theology is actually rooted in and founded in the gospel, and it kind of flows out of what Christ accomplished on the cross, what he accomplished in the gospel. So good theology always does that. And you'll notice for Paul, uh, because he's got good theology, he, he's never more than a sentence or a breath away from pivoting back to the, his foundation in the gospel. And so it is here, right? So he's talking about our need to intercede and pray for others. That's the first three verses of chapter 2, particularly kings and rulers and authorities. And then he goes, chapter 2, verse 4, 
Why, why do we pray for these people? Because it is pleasing in the sight of God who desires for all to be saved. So prayer for many people, kings, rulers, authorities, Jews, and Gentiles, why do we, why do we pray for them? It's because it's pleasing to God. Because God died for those people. Okay? Then he's going to pivot, and then he's going to say, and this is not just true that it's the will of God, but it's actually the very mission of Christ. This is what you see in verse 5. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, or God and mankind, the one man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the mediator who stands between God and men. And so if, if Jesus is the mediator and he's telling us pray and intercede for these other people, we have no reason, no foundation not to pray for them. But then he goes further and he's going to say it's not just that Jesus is the mediator, Jesus is also the ransom. So you'll notice how his logic in prayer, what we talked about last week, is immediately linked to a foundation in the gospel. The gospel is the foundation on which we pray for, for rulers and for authorities and, frankly, for, for one another. So this is kind of the flow of his argument that you see. But we'll just be looking at those first three verses and talking about this ransom, this payment that Jesus has offered. And, and in, in what way does that take shape? In what way does that have an effect? So there's uh, at least two theological hot button issue that we'll bring up tonight and that we'll be able to hammer out in discussion. So the first one uh, is one that I'll raise right now, which is that Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men. Now, the theology that needs to be the case for that to be true is that Jesus needs to be both God and man. If Jesus is not God, he cannot intercede for us uh, towards God. And if he's not man, he can't intercede for us and represent mankind. So he needs to be both God and man. And so this is what Paul means when he says he's the mediator between God and man. Uh, we might say because he is the God-man. Because he's God and because he's man, he can actually stand in the gap between our distance between us and God. There's uh, many church fathers, many church theologians who have hammered out this point almost to death. I would encourage you to read as many of those writings as you can get your hands on. Uh, particularly Athanasius talks about this in his reason for the incarnation or on the incarnation. And a later church father, Anselm, writes something similar in his work uh, on the God-man or why the God-man uh, in Latin, curious deo homo, curious deus homo. Why the God-man? Why does Jesus have to be both God and man? It is because he has to suffer and intercede as the mediator between God and mankind. Only God can be holy enough to approach God who is in an unapproachable light and only man can stand as the representative for other men. Therefore, Christ, being both fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, can stand in that gap between us and God. Now, what this does not mean is that Jesus has a different will than God the Father because he does stand in the gap between us and God, but remember, because he's God, he's standing in the gap, in some sense, between us and himself. Now hold that idea in your head. Because God does not act, the Father, Son, and Spirit do not act independently from one another. They act as one will, there is one Godhead, and they have a unified will. And that unified will is expressed in verse 4, to save all, and in verse 5, in Jesus' mediation. That one will is expressed in, in both those things. So although Jesus is the person of the Trinity who acts as mediator, he does not do that to subvert God the Father who does not want mediation to occur or who is a vindictive judge. 
He stands as the mediator because Father, Son, and Spirit willed him to stand as the mediator between us and God. Similarly, Jesus being the active mediator does not mean that he is also not judge who in some sense is have the, he, he holds the, the keys of accusation against us as well. He is the judge of all the earth and he mediates on our behalf. So Jesus is playing double duty in this sense. He's both true God and, and he's standing in the gap between us and God and he's representing us perfectly. So this is what we would say if you're thinking about oh, these are a lot of complex ideas. This is how we have to think in a Trinitarian way about Jesus because Jesus is not divided from the Father or from the Spirit. They work as, as one in, in unison with one another. If we're not careful, what we'll unfortunately do is say that God the Father is vindictive against mankind and wants to punish mankind, and Jesus stands in the gap between us and the Father because Jesus loves us even though the Father doesn't, and the Father must deal with us because Jesus is mediating for us. That's not good theology because God loved the world so much that he sends Jesus into the world to save the world. And that includes the Father, Son, and Spirit who will Christ to live in the world to save the world and ultimately die for that salvation. And it's also that same Godhead that wills him to mediate between us and God. This is why one of the first things that the church has to do in the first 300 years of the church is it has to say, who is Jesus and why is that important? And out of that, we get the Nicene Creed, which tells us all that we need to know about Jesus he is very God of very God, light from light. He is of the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. They are, they are God. They are the Godhead. So because Jesus is truly God and truly man, he can stand in the gap for us. He can stand in the gap truly and represent us. And this is something that Paul thinks is important and foundational for our prayers because otherwise we might come to believe that we must stand in the gap between us and God. So one of the things we do in prayer, we call it intercessory prayer which I think is a good word for it, but we should not press that theology to say, we are standing in the gap between God and sinners. It is Christ who stands in the gap between God and sinners. And what we do is we appeal to Christ's sacrifice. We appeal to his mercy for him to mediate between God and sin. So when we are interceding for other Christians and other non-believers, and we are praying to God for their salvation, we're not pressing that to the point to say, that we are now standing in the gap because we are the mediator. That is not true. Christ Jesus is the mediator. And this is something that's important, which is why I think Paul includes it when he says we pray for kings and people all over the earth because Jesus is the mediator. He's the foundation for our intercessory prayer. So this is, you might say, why he, he puts this theology here. Jesus' mediation is the foundation for our prayer of intercession for others. That's a good gospel foundation to pray for other people. And similarly, the second theological hot-button issue that comes up here is Christ's ransom. Now, this gets into many questions and, and the, theological, uh, we would say, pitfalls that you could run into. Uh, and Christ Jesus is the ransom. He is the ransom for sinners. And then the, then the question we have to ask immediately behind that is, what is this picture of a ransom depicting? It, we know that all pictures fall short in some way of God's infinite wisdom and vastness. So what is this picture communicating to us that Jesus is the ransom? What we don't want to say is that Jesus pays the ransom to the devil or to Satan because the debt was not owed to Satan. Scripture makes it clear that we owe a debt to God himself. We owe a debt to the Father. He is the one to whom the debt and payment is owed. So Jesus is the ransom of his people 
towards, we would say, the Godhead. He, he appeases that payment. He cancels the debt by paying it himself. This is how he acts as the ransom. And in his ransom, in his payment, we can, we can deduce what our debt was that we owed. So because of the way in which Jesus died, that he was crucified and it cost him his life, and we would say then that his, his ransom paid for sin, we would have to recognize that that is actually the cost of sin against the holy God. So because he's the ransom, he, he makes the payment. His payment is a, we would say, a sufficient payment. And that means it's, all, it's also what we owe towards God. So if we are not found in Christ, if we are not hidden in him, well, that is the debt that we owe outstanding towards God. That is what we owe the Father, what we owe the Son, and what we owe the Spirit on Judgment Day. Our very lives, it is what is owed of us because that is what sin costs. So Jesus being the ransom helps us to understand what even is the debt that we owe. Lest we think that sin is merely a misgiving or a bad habit or something like that, that really doesn't demand this payment of life. But sin does depend a payment of life, and we know that because Jesus is the ransom for sin. This is the foundation of Paul's other places of theology where he says the wages of sin is death. Sin is death. How do we know that sin is death? God tells us so, Genesis. And also Jesus' sacrifice reminds us and affirms that that is what sin costs because he has to die to deal with the payment of sin. So Jesus is the ransom, and he's the ransom, uh, and here the text says all. You might have a translation that says all men, or he's a ransom for many. This is something that was brought up last week as well, when we see uh, it is the will of God to save all. Now it's important that we notice that the very next thing that Paul says after he, he says that Jesus is the ransom for all, is then he pivots and he says a strange thing, for I was appointed as a preacher and apostle, and if you skip the parentheses, a teacher of Gentiles in faith and truth. What Paul is going on to explain is what does he mean by all? And what he means by all is people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This is who Jesus died for. He did not just die for Jewish people and Jewish people only. He did not just die for those who are bloodline children of Abraham. He died for all. He died for all kinds of people. He died for Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female. That is why we can all be united together in Christ. What all does not mean is that Jesus died for every single individual person in the world and thus there is no more debt owed for sin. And the reason you might, you might halt and be saying that, but unless we wanna to go to universalism to say that every single person on earth will be saved, there is no hell, we would have to pause and say in some sense, his death is not actually a ransom for all because some people do actually die and go to hell. So some people have taken this statement, he dies as a ransom for all, and have concluded, therefore there is no more payment for hell, no more payment for sin, everyone's going to heaven. We've talked about that a couple of weeks ago in, in terms of universalism as one of the false teachings we ought to avoid as Christians because the Bible constantly affirms this idea that hell is real, judgment is forthcoming, and thus the urgency to repent and believe. But when it says all, one of the things that is important there is that we, we do not limit Christ's salvation to people of our kin, or in the Jews' case, people of their kin. This is one of the things Paul always has to deal with in the New Testament. The Judaizers saying, you have to become Jewish to be saved, or you have to become a, a true Israelite to be saved. And Paul says in Romans, a true Israelite is the one who has faith like Abraham had faith. That is what a true Israelite is. And so it is that Christ dies for all true Israelites, all children of Abraham, who are united to him by faith in the very Son of God. 
This is what he means by all. So then he says, right after that, I was appointed as a preacher and apostle, a teacher to the Gentiles. Okay? He's saying all means, yes, even the Gentiles. All includes these kinds of people as well, what the Jews would say are pagans. Paul is the apostle to them because Jesus died for them. This is the idea in the text. So Christ Jesus is the, the ransom. And there's one more thing, a theological question which pops up out of this. And this might be the most difficult question of all. But the question is this. When we say Jesus paid a ransom, if that's the, the language that is used in the text, the idea of a ransom is once the payment is met, there's no more debt that is owed. So if you pay a ransom to someone, if you cancel a debt by paying it, that person no longer owes the debt no matter what. So it, we, you can't be punished for a debt that you don't owe. So if Jesus cancels the debt of every single individual person in the entire world throughout all history, then universalism is the only logical conclusion because otherwise God would be punishing sinners twice for the sin that Jesus paid and the sin that they owed themselves, and it's double jeopardy. You can't punish people twice for sin. That would be an unjust thing to do. So here comes the idea of what we would say is called particular redemption or definite atonement, wherein Christ, in his ransom, applies that death, which is of infinite value and worth, only to those who are the elect in Christ. So those who are God's chosen, who are his elect, who are hidden in him, it is, it is those for whom Christ dies because his death is a ransom. It is a payment for them. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the debt has truly been canceled. But this means that the Godhead works once again in unison. We would say the Father elects some to salvation. The Son dies to effectively save those people where there is no payment owed. And then that the Holy Spirit regenerates those whom the Father has elected and whom the Son has died for. This is the way the Godhead works in unison together. Now, I realize that kicks up a whole bunch of theological questions, much of which we can hash out in our discussion. But if you're, if you're taking a step back and you're asking the big picture of this whole section, what I really want you to see, even if you're, you have questions about some of what was just said, what I really want you to see is this gospel-centric theology that Paul uses to justify every single one of his activities. You'll see this throughout the letter in 1 Timothy. You'll see this in the foundation of the church's worship. But you should never, in your own theology, stray too far from the gospel of Christ because all theology, all good theology, is founded on the gospel of Christ. So prayer, in this section, is founded on Christ's death and intercession. Prayer is founded on Christ's mediation, which is part of his gospel work. You're going to see, uh, or you saw earlier in the text, uh, in chapter 1, the fact that Christ has a pure gospel is the reason why we deal with false teachings. Because if we have the true gospel, we do not want that perverted by any false teaching. So even our defense of good theology is not dispute for dispute's sake. It is dispute for the defense of the gospel's sake. And this is something Christians especially need to get a real strong sense of, a real good taste for, is, is when do we die on hills and when do we not die on hills? In Paul's theology, because he stays so close to the atonement of Jesus Christ in his life and death and his resurrection, because he stays so close to that, you'll notice he has a really good ability to let things go when he needs to let them go and really good sense of when he needs to die on hills. Now, if you're reading Paul because of the letters that he writes, you might think he's dying on every hill. And I want to assure you that is not the case because 
For instance, in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, he spends a great deal of time talking about food sacrificed to idols, and he basically says, be at peace with one another. Basically, not a hill I'm going to die on. But then in other cases, he'll say, because you were united with Christ, you cannot live like that. The gospel is the center and the foundation. Therefore, Paul's dying on the hill. You need to live a holy life. We need to have a sense of that as well. Vain theological disputes, which we are often prone to in order to be right or to be seen as wise or uh, informed, those are not good principles. Those are not good practices in theology. Learn as much as you can. Read as much as you can. But you have to also know which hills are worth dying upon. For Paul, you'll notice those hills come as soon as you get real close to Jesus and his work. If you get, to, if you get close to Christ, let's say his deity and his, his humanity, Paul's dying on that hill. If you get close to his death on the cross, that it was a death for the payment of sin, he's going to die on that hill. You should too. If you stray far away from that and you talk about, uh, is it more holy to eat food uh, or eat meat or not eat meat? Paul's saying, it's too far away. I'm willing to live at peace, even though I think there's a theological right answer there, kind of what he alludes to. We need to have that same kind of sense as well. Uh, A sense for when we're dying on hills and a sense for when we're not going to die on hills. Now, uh, there's one more thing I want to wrap up with, which... Uh, you'll see at the end of verse 6. And this is something that Paul uh, says uh, about Christ's ransom. And you notice this, it says, which he gave as the testimony at the proper time, or it was given to us as a testimony, let's say, uh, in the nick of time. Jesus' death is an effective death. It is an effective payment. One of the ways we know it's an effective payment is because Christ resurrects from the grave. And he ascends to the right hand of the Father, from which he will intercede for us from now unto the end of the age, unto the end of time itself. He is the just-in-time testimony that we need for our redemption. God tarries in his salvation, his act of redemption, for thousands of years. He, at the right time, sends Jesus into the world to be incarnated, to die a bloody death on the cross, and then not to stay dead, but to resurrect. He is the just-in-time testimony, and he, he then intercedes for us eternally. Now, one of the things that this implies very effectively is that when you sin, let's say yesterday or today, or you go tomorrow and you sin against your wife or husband or friend, you hate them in your heart, whatever that sin is, one of the things you need to be reminded of is that Jesus is not a past witness against God's accusation for your sin, but he is the just-in-time witness. He's always going to come in, swoop in, with a testimony say, to say, I have paid for that outstanding debt. Thus, Christians should not feel condemnation or shame or guilt from their sin. Not that we should not feel remorse or a certain kind of guilt, but we should not feel an a overbearing weight of shame as though there is no solution to our sin. Because Jesus is a testimony, an abiding witness to the fact that sin has no power over us. Sin has no hold on us because he paid it himself. He can, with his own hands and with his side, attest to the Father that sin has no outstanding debt on us. And therefore, his testimony is, we would say, our very hope for daily living as believers. The fact that he is the witness at the proper time is a foundation of hope that we have so that we do not feel condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, after we have sinned. It is not that we do not feel the need for repentance and to be united once again with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in relationship, but 
frankly, our eternal destinies don't hang in the balance. If you're a believer, if you're united with Christ, you have no condemnation hanging over you, even if you sin tomorrow. You cannot outsin the testimony of God in Christ Jesus, which he has bought for you as a believer. So with that, let me close and lend us into discussion. Our Father in God, we are thankful to you for your grace, for your word, and ultimately, Lord, for the witness that you bore about your love for us through your Son, that you sent him to redeem us, and that he did so. So we do not have questions about, does this count or does this not count? But we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we really have no more debt owed to you, no more debt owed to sin, that we, we truly have a clean slate before you, and that the witness of Christ, his ongoing work of intercession, is the foundation for that confidence. Lord, you are a good God to do so kindly to us, and we ought to worship you in response. We thank you and we praise your name. Amen.